Welcome to Startup DNA. I'm your host, Martin Nündung, and I know firsthand how hard and frustrating it can be to build a successful business. In this podcast, I interview the world's leading entrepreneurs and investors on how to turn a business idea into a highly profitable market leader. Oh, if you are interested in raising venture capital, then get my free startup fundraising tips at roadtofunding.com. Let's get started to uncover the secrets to building great businesses. In today's episode of Startup DNA, I'll chat with Amra Avadala, who co-founded Cloudera, a company that many of you might have already been in touch with if you are building the next big thing using big data, machine learning, or analytics. Amra will share the secrets on how the Cloudera story started, his experience with raising money from investors while we are actually doing a walkthrough through his pitch deck, and his learnings on how to stay innovative and hungry once you are a market leader. So, without further ado, let's get right into it. Welcome, Amra. Happy to talk to you again. Same thing here. <laughs> cool stuff. Um, let's start by talking a little bit about Cloudera's journey so far. Briefly paint the story from the very early beginnings until today in big strokes. So, yeah, Cloudera is a nine years old company. We were uh, started in uh, 2008. There was uh, four of us, myself from uh, Yahoo, and my co-founders came from uh, Facebook and uh, Google and Oracle. There was the four of us, and uh, we had this ambition or understanding that uh, by leveraging data and using data in the right way, uh, some of the world's most impossible and hard problems to solve today will be possible to solve in the future by using uh, machine learning and uh, advanced analytics. So that was kind of the foundation of the company. We uh, raised uh, capital from uh, Excel partners in our round A and a number of angel investors. Uh, but then in follow-on rounds, we raised capital from many other VCs like uh, Greylock Partners, uh, Meritech Capital, uh, Ignition Partners, and uh, a number of others, actually. Just before our IPO, uh, Intel came in and Intel became a strategic uh, investor in Cloudera. Intel owns about 20% of the company. And then we did our uh, IPO after that, where we uh, sold about, I think, 50% of our shares to the public market. And now we are operating in about 30 countries worldwide. We have a lot of customers that uh, tend to be in the global 8,000 when you sort them by revenue, using us for many applications that have to do with customer 360, meaning understanding customers, Internet of Things, and leveraging data to improve products and services. And then uh, another very common use case is uh, uh, cybersecurity, uh, fraud detection, and uh, risk Analytics is another very key use case of ours. And we have about 1,600 employees in the company right now. Cool stuff. So that's a very brief uh, high-level summary. When you just started out, you have been in a very unique position that enabled you to actually execute on this business opportunity. How did you validate that, that your customers have a big unsolved problem and that you might be in a position to serve a unique valuable solution in a big market? So we have a special case in some sense uh, compared to other startups because myself and my co-founders, while working at Yahoo, Facebook, and Google, we kind of experienced the future of where many other companies were going to end up. And by that, I mean we experienced the very fast, rapid growth of data. Uh, we experienced 
the variability of data, many different types of data, not just transactional structured data, but also semi-structured logs that come from web servers or sensors or mobile devices, and then unstructured data like images and emails and PDF documents. So we experienced all of that, and because of that experience, we saw that there will be a significant need in the future to have systems that are very different from our traditional database systems. And these new data systems will need to be able to work with any type of data, will need to be able to run analytics and do machine learning beyond the capabilities of what SQL can do. And uh, that need for agility when it comes to different uh, types of processing, flexibility when it comes to different types of data was not met by the legacy traditional databases. And hence, it became very, very clear to us that a solution needs to exist to, to do that. And we implemented Hadoop in our respective organizations or at Facebook and, and Yahoo. Google had their own MapReduce system very similar to Hadoop. And we saw that that obviously is the answer because the foundation there was having a flexible storage layer that can work with any type of data and then a, a flexible compute layer that can compute with the many techniques of which SQL is one, but it can do other techniques as well. When we left our respective organizations, Facebook, Yahoo, and Google, we spent a few months, three, four months also just doing market validation, speaking to some other key contacts that we had at the telecommunication companies, at banks, to validate that this unmet need of being able to work with any type of data and extract value from the data in different ways is not just unique to uh, the web companies, meaning Facebook, Google, and Yahoo, but exists in banks, exists in telecommunication companies, in health companies, manufacturing governments. So we did some uh, kind of investigation there and surveys to try and validate that. And we got a lot of confirmation from many people that this is a problem that they are seeing the beginnings of. I mean, in your specific situation, it's really great because you have been working at the frontier and this type of company so that you were in the position that you actually could spot this kind of business opportunity. What is your tip to maybe other people interested in starting a company, how they can become more immersed in, I don't know, some kind of technology companies or maybe legal changes or some other things so that they can maximize in terms of finding the next big thing and then start working on it? So obviously every situation is different. It's hard actually to generalize a common rule across the board. Uh, I mean, as I said earlier, we were fortunate and lucky that uh, we experienced that problem firsthand in our respective organizations. Uh, ideally, that's what you want as an entrepreneur because that gives you very, very high confidence that uh, whatever solution you're working on is for a real problem that exists as opposed to a made-up problem that might not exist. So we were fortunate that we experienced that firsthand. So I would say if you're an entrepreneur and uh, you're experienced the problem firsthand, then that is the best situation. The next best uh, thing to do after that, if you're not experiencing the problem firsthand, then at least before you start launching the company, uh, start reaching out and uh, interviewing and surveying different potential customers that should be suspects of that problem so that you can validate that the problem actually exists. Right. So that would be my advice. So one thing I see many founders fail at are basically two things. One, focus on the right things at a time. Yeah. And the second one, creating enough urgency to move ahead quickly. Can you share some insights on how you make sure you are focused on the right things and create urgency? Of course, it's a very hard trade-off because uh, some of the priorities that you want to be focused on might be long-term one and not something that you can achieve in the next uh, two months or three months. And urgency is really about right here, right now. When you're a very, very young startup 
and uh, still in your first two years, urgency is a lot more important. Uh, focus on urgency is a lot more important because you're really out there, you're beginning, you're trying out many, many things very quickly, iterating to try and hone in and zoom in on the right thing that you should be focusing on. So at the beginning years, it's kind of focus is important, but I would say urgency is a lot more important. You're trying to throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall, like they say, and see which of these spaghettis will stick. So having the sense of urgency of trying many, many things and failing quickly and trying again is a lot more important in the early stages of the company. And that's kind of what we did in the first two years. But once you cross the first two years, focus becomes much more important. Like once you decide that this is the thing I'm going to be doing and you know exactly the problem that you will be solving and the features set that you'll be working on, focus now becomes a much more important thing because that's by having all of the energy and all of the people over the company focused on that common goal and common mission and common purpose is what will allow you to uh, beat the, the very large companies like uh, IBM or whatever that might be competing with you in the same space. They have a lot more resources, they have a lot more money, and the thing that will allow you to beat them is your very dedicated focus on the mission that you're after. Yeah, right. This brings me basically to the next question. Cloudera falls a very interesting and, from my point of view, effective company culture. Can you elaborate a little on your company culture and how it helps you turn people into a high-performance team? So different companies have different cultures. The culture is not a constant across uh, the board. What works for Cloudera might not work for another company. But what worked for us and what we have done at Cloudera is a focus on four culture attributes that we uh, look for, and we reinforce them in uh, many different ways. The first culture attribute is be the change. And uh, be the change comes from a very famous quote from Gandhi, of uh, where he said, be the change you want to see in the world. And what uh, Gandhi meant there is when you see a problem, when you see something broken, when you see an, an, an unreasonable situation, don't just complain about it and be passive and just complain, complain, complain with words. No, try to be the change that you want to happen. Try to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. So that's what, one of the ways that we operate at Caldera. We like to hire people that have that mentality of detecting problems and highlighting problems, but then immediately moving on to how can we solve this problem? How can we impact this problem in a positive way, uh, whether ourselves, by doing it ourselves, or by highlighting it to others that uh, and give them ideas for what they can do if that problem is in that area of responsibility. So uh, Be the Change is one of our very core attributes. Be the Change also stands for having the self-drive and the motivation and the initiative that comes out from within you. So, for example, if you're uh, done with your task, you're done with your job, uh, you don't just sit there and wait for your boss and come and tell you another job to do. Uh, rather, uh, you go tell their, your boss what they should be working on. <laughs> Or you at least go ask them what should they be working on. You, you don't just sit there and wait for them to come to you. You, you be proactive and you show self-drive and initiative towards advancing uh, the mission of the company and advancing the project you're working on. So that's really what we mean by be the change. And I would say it's really a very, very core part of our culture. When we are hiring people, we look for that. We look that, for that initiative and self-drive uh, within them as much as we can, as much as possible during a short interview. So it's a key thing that we look for. And then as you work at Cloudera and as you uh, achieve things and... Uh, achieve progress, we do have quarterly 
uh, awards that we give out. And one of the key things that we highlight is, have you been a change agent within the company? Have you changed the company and moved the ball forward in a very positive way uh, or not? So that's one of the things that we reinforce many, many, in many ways, actually. So that's the first culture attribute. The second uh, culture attribute that we focus on is called Be Open. And uh, be open here, part of it is the fact that we're an open source company, so the software is open source, but that's not really it. By be open, we mean when you talk, when you speak, when you ask for something, uh, truly mean what you're asking for. Don't uh, play politics. Don't say something while you're trying to achieve something else. No, just be transparent, be blunt, be honest. Don't play games, essentially. So that's what we mean by be open. Be high integrity. Don't try to find shortcuts for problems. Focus on the long term of the company, not just the short term. Achieve the right balance between them. So that's kind of what we mean by be open and, and being transparent and being trustworthy. Not just within the company, trustworthy within the company, but trustworthy with our customers, mm-hmm. uh, trustworthy and open with our partners, etc., etc. So that's the be open attribute. So be the change, be open. And then uh, the third one is grow with Cloudera. And uh, Grow with Cloudera is two things. It's a commitment from the company that we will uh, invest in you, we will mentor you, and will help you grow. But it's also an expectation from the company that we expect you uh, to have the hunger for growth. We expect you as an employee to want to learn, to want to expand your scope, to expand your skills, expand the knowledge that you have, expand the, uh, the surface area that you are affecting within the company, have impact within the strategic decisions of the company. So we want to see that hunger and that need to grow uh, within you. And that's kind of the, one of the another key characteristic that we look for in the people that we hire and also one of the things that we reward. If we see somebody who's very hungry and truly trying to uh, do more and, and, and achieve more, we give them more, right? We don't just right. let them stand there. So uh, grow with Cloudera. And then last but not least is uh, fly information. And uh, by fly information, what we mean there is teamwork. And it comes from an analogy. The analogy is uh, from the geese. When, when the geese fly up high in the sky, the geese usually fly in a pattern that looks like the letter V. And when they fly information in that pattern of the letter V, they actually achieve 73% more efficiency uh, in, in terms of the distance they can travel as a function of the energy they put in. Uh, and the reason why is because the head goose uh, passes uh, aerodynamic uh, efficiency to the two geese behind it in terms of less air friction, and they pass that to the ones behind them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that cascading effect uh, lead to them being way more productive if they had not been flying in that formation. And uh, the same analogy holds. Like we expect all of our employees to be working very hard and focused on the same set of goals. And by focusing on that same set of goals, we achieve much higher efficiency uh, in terms of how much we accomplish given our resources in terms of people and money compared to a big company like IBM or otherwise. The other nice benefits of that analogy is the geese, when they fly information like that, the head goose, the one at the head of the letter V, is not always the manager or the CEO or the director of engineering or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a different goose every time can be the head goose in the sense that it depends on the project. It depends which customer we're trying to to sell to. Then that sales rep that's working with this customer, they are the head goose. And myself and our CEO, we will follow them to try and close that customer. If there is a certain engineer trying to build a new feature, 
that's critical for our product, that engineer is the head goose and everybody else will be behind them trying to support them in achieving that. So the head goose changes depending on what you're trying to achieve. And then last but not least, another key characteristic of uh, the geese when they're flying like that is when the wind is blowing very tough uh, against them, meaning the times are hard. You have hard times. They fly closer together to try and achieve better uh, strength against the hard times, the hard winds. And uh, they don't try and point their fingers at each other, in this, or in the geese case, at their wings at each other, <laughs> and say, hey, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, you did this, you did that. No, they actually stand together and fight much harder to overcome the challenging times, as opposed to blaming each other. And we have that same characteristic. And, and in fact, many, many entrepreneurs and uh, VCs would tell you that what makes a strong team and makes a strong company is how that company and how the team comes together when times are hard, not how they come together when times are easy. Any, anybody can come together and achieve good results when times right. are easy. It's how do they really shine when times are hard? So that's why we love that analogy of fly information uh, from the geese, and we live by that within the company as well. One last side effect of that analogy is at Cloudera also we don't like what we call the disruptive cowboys, meaning if, if an employee thinks, oh, I'm the smartest person in the world, and this company will fail or succeed because of me and how genius I am, then we fire that employee because we don't operate in that way. We operate in, we are all the smartest people in the world and together, collectively, we will make this company succeed. So we have to work together. We have to teach each other. We have to try to make those around us smarter than us if we can. So we have to teach them and mentor them and invest in them. But we have to have that attitude of teamwork. Uh, otherwise, again, we won't be able to uh, succeed against big companies that have a lot more resources and money than us. Right. So I totally love this analogy because it's always about whether the individual contributes more or the network. And from my point of view, if the larger your company grows, the more value comes out of the network because all of those different nodes that are connected there. Exactly. Yeah? Yes, absolutely. So until today, Cloudera raised more than $1 billion from investors. But it all started with your first startup pitch deck, which helped you raise $5 million from Excel Partners. And the rest is history, as we know. Let's chat a little about the first pitch deck which I'll share below today's podcast on Road to Funding. Before we have a look at single slides, what are the key messages you want to communicate to investors so that they perceive your business idea attractive enough to get further in the fundraising process? And I know that you have been in a very, very specific situation with Excel Partners. Yeah, so again, I would say in, in general, the key messages that you want to um, communicate is the problem is real. So you want to, as much as you can, convince the investor that this is a real problem, not a made-up problem. And they will poke you on that as much as they can because they don't understand the problem. They are looking to you to convince them that this is a real problem that exists across many organizations. So that's number one. Number two, to convince them that you are, first, the right team to solve that problem. And second, you have a solution or at least understand the requirements of the solution at a depth that is unique to you meaning it's very hard for a hundred other companies to come in and solve that problem in the same way that you would. So that's kind of the, really the, the, what the essence of what you're trying to show. You're trying to show there is a real problem. That real problem is very widespread, meaning there is a very large market size and a market opportunity behind it. That problem is solvable. There is a solution that can exist for that problem, and you are most and better equipped 
to come up with that uh, solution and that your team is a very unique team that when they come together can truly achieve that. These are really the key things you want to you wanna communicate. The last thing you want to stress and highlight is the competition. Is there a lot of competition in the space already or is this really a beginning space and there isn't uh, that much competition yet? So that's another very important angle. But I would say it falls me. It's come second. The key things is covering the team, the problem that you are solving, and then the solution slash product that you are offering that can address uh, that problem. That's it. These are the three the three key ingredients of an excellent pitch deck. Okay, then let's dive directly into your first pitch deck. Can you please walk us through your first pitch deck and elaborate a little bit on your thinking behind the major important slides? Okay, so I'm going to go through the deck uh, and I'll try to call out the slide numbers. So if people are uh, listening uh, later, they can uh, scroll to the same slides as, as I am. Focusing on slide number two, which is uh, the first slide of the content, That was our beginning description of why the big data problem will continue to get bigger and bigger over time, and that a new solution for scaling out the processing of data and machine learning and advanced analytics is an absolute requirement compared to the past. So most trends in the past using legacy data systems and traditional databases was to buy faster and faster CPUs multi-way CPUs that have many cores and uh, you're really just scaling up by buying a bigger server to solve the problem. And this graph that we have here, the Moore's Law graph, was showing very clearly that the rate with which data is growing uh, is happening much quicker than uh, Moore's Law is, assuming Moore's Law continue, actually. I mean, even Moore's Law itself was continuing to slow down already. But even if you were to assume Moore's law of doubling of capacity every year and a half continues, even at that rate, the data growth was even higher than that, which clearly meant that we need a new solution to be able to cope with that massive, massive growth of volume of, of data. So that was the beginning of us implanting the idea in the head of the investors that this problem is a real problem. It's not a fake problem, and this problem will only get worse as time uh, progresses. And then uh, slide number three uh, shows the exact uh, same picture again, uh, but with uh, focus more on the scalability of uh, CPU architectures and how that scalability now is uh, starting uh, to uh, slow down. The multi-core approach was the last trick that we had for on silicon. And now if we're going to speed up computation going forward, we need to go beyond multi-core, meaning we need to really go after multi-server as the main approach. Uh, in the fourth uh, slide, uh, which you want to do early in your presentation, um, some, some people sometimes say it should, should be the first slide, is to introduce the team and who are the key players on the team. So uh, the fourth slide shows Mike Olson, who is my co-founder from Oracle, and he was the CEO for Cloudera for the first five years. Uh, he is now the chairman of the board and the chief strategy officer. Next to him on the right is Christoph Pichilia, who He was with us for two years. He came from Google. On the lower left is myself. I came from Yahoo, where I was there for eight years, and I was the Uh, CTO and VP of Engineering at Cloudera for the first five years. And then uh, on the lower right is uh, Jeff Hammerbacker, who came from uh, Facebook. And at Facebook, he actually was there very early on when Facebook started. And he started the data science team at Facebook. And he actually coined the term uh, data science, uh, data scientist. And data science was coined by him. Like he came up with that kind of uh, with that uh, term. Right. That is now very widely used in the, in the industry. And uh, Jeff right now also is not a Cloudera. He left us a few uh, years ago, and he's now full-time at uh, Mount Sinai, where he is using our technology, using the Cloudera platform, 
to build uh, technologies around how to automate the detection of cancer and the coming up with different cures for combating bad cancer cells within the human body. Uh, but his ultimate vision is really how can we create doctors uh, using this technology. Cool stuff. The next slide, slide number five, was introducing, and this is unique to us now, unique to Cloudera and our story, the beginnings of us convincing the investors that the solution for this problem is real. And the way how we knew the solution is real, again, comes from our experience at Google and Yahoo and Facebook. So at Google, they had built internal systems called MapReduce and GFS, the Google file system, to solve that problem of being able to process larger amounts of data. And Google was nice enough in 2004 to publish these papers, academic papers, that then were picked up by uh, Doug Cutting and Mike Caffarella, whom you can see their names at the, the bottom side of that slide. And they made an open source implementation. Uh, later on, Doug Cutting was actually hired at Yahoo. And uh, that open source implementation was called Hadoop when Doug was at Yahoo. And then while I was at Yahoo and while Fiz and uh, Jeff Harbacker was at Facebook, we got to use that open source solution. And we saw that that open source solution was solving these scalability problems. It was able to scale with the amount of data that we have. But not just that, it was able to process any type of data, not just transaction data, which is another key requirement that we had. So scale was one requirement. Multi-types of data was another requirement. And it was able to attack that data, meaning process that data in many ways. SQL was one of them, but it was allowed us to do machine learning and advanced analytics in other ways as well. So we experienced the solution firsthand. And by describing that and our experience with that, that's how we uh, convinced the investors that not only is the problem real, but that the solution is also very real and very feasible. Uh, so slide number six, uh, we gave a little more, a bit more details about the Hadoop technologies. Uh, you guys are welcome to read that slide. But essentially, it was focused on these key things I just described uh, earlier. And it was built as an open source platform, which uh, from history, if you look at what Red Hat did with Linux and how Linux was able to overcome many other proprietary operating systems like HPUX and uh, Solaris from Sun and many, many others like uh, AIX and so on, open source was a key ingredient of that. Many companies liked the fact that Linux was open source and that was behind the growth of, of Linux. So that also, we want to highlight that and remind the investors of that, that that open source nature of Hadoop, uh, not only is it good in terms of innovation for solving the problem, it is something that a lot of organizations and companies across the world prefer for their backend systems because it allows them to avoid uh, lock-in. Slide number seven was to show our investors that this solution is not just something that is beneficial for Yahoo and Facebook and Google, but there is a number of other companies already starting to say that, yes, we like this solution, we think this is a very good solution. Uh, so these were some of the very early companies that started to implement Hadoop uh, within their organizations uh, without there being any commercial provider behind the Hadoop open source technology. So that, again, that all falls back into giving the investors confidence that this is a large market opportunity, not just a problem that is useful for one or two companies. The next slide is another slide that communicates that, that as well, slide number eight, where we and I advise many startups to do this as well when they're researching their own new idea, is uh, Google Trends. Uh, Google can, Trends can show you the frequency of search terms. So the blue curve is how many people were searching for Hadoop back then in 2007. And, he, and you can see legacy databases like Nikiza or Teradata in red and how Hadoop has 
been growing very quickly, exceeding Netiza in terms of popularity and uh, and approaching Teradata in terms of popularity. Again, this was very early on. Now, now Hadoop is way beyond Teradata in terms of uh, popularity. Uh, so that was between showing these slides and the next one with the fact that this is a worldwide phenomena on slide nine, you can see that, gave the investors confidence that this is a very real problem that exists in many, many places. So the, that whole first half of the presentation was about real problem, it's going to help companies across the world in many places, not just one or two companies. And the solution and the beginning of the solution is there, is very feasible, is very doable. We just need to focus on getting it done. Right. Next slide was a bit more technical, describing why Hadoop is successful, but it really boils down to the things I described earlier, which is it's very scalable because of how it handles I.O. and compute. It is very flexible in terms of being able to process data in many different ways. It's very flexible also in terms of the types of data it can consume. And then it uh, follows a pattern that's called prescriptive development, which is the fourth bullet uh, point, point on slide number 10, meaning that the code, the algorithms, the queries that you develop that run on one server will run on a thousand servers. You don't need to change, go back and change your architecture or change your code or change your queries or re-index your data or repartition your data. No, it will just scale with you as you grow uh, to bigger amounts of data. Slide uh, number 11 comes actually from the book, The Innovator Dilemma. Like one of the key things that uh, was stressed in The Innovator Dilemma book, which is a book I highly recommend, was you can discover an area of disruption or an area of innovation uh, if you can detect patterns of non-consumption. And non-consumption meaning the end user, the end customer is trying to consume data or trying to consume product in a certain way, but because of the legacy architecture, leg the legacy products, the legacy systems, they couldn't. And uh, this slide was highlighting that. So in slide number 11, we showed the traditional uh, business intelligence data stack and how there was a couple of points of non-consumption in terms of not being able to attack data in the middle of their data mining, not, not being able to do data mining very easily, and in terms of not being able to go back to the raw data very easily from the BI reporting layer. And this... Uh, points of non-consumption usually force users, force customers to find new solutions. And that's what you see in slide 12 is how by uh, implementing a solution like Hadoop, which is a smart storage layer that can store any type of data and process the data many different ways, not just SQL, you now open up the consumption. You can do BI, you can do machine learning, you can go back and look at the rent level atomic data without having to move your data between different systems. Uh, slide number 13 uh, was really about competition. Right? So as I said earlier, one of the key things you want to cover in your presentation deck is how you compare to the competition. And typically, if you're trying to disrupt legacy solutions, you want to be 10x better than them in one or two or even three dimensions. And this slide was showing that, was showing that we are 10x better than legacy systems, which is the green circle is the legacy systems, the red circle is the, the kind of the new approach, and how by having a system that is focused on scalability, you are able to be 10x better than them and along all of these dimensions, being able to handle much bigger amounts of data, much bigger amounts of data per job, and handle all types of data, not just structured uh, data. So that differentiated us from the competition. This is called a spider graph, by the way. It's one good way of showing your differentiation across more than one dimension. Yeah, right. Slide number 14 was kind of, I think, our conclusion slide, which is, or the slide before the conclusion, which is to show that cloud is a big, very big part of it. Again, this was back in 2008, and cloud was really still beginning, but we told them, like, one of the key benefits of this platform being built to be able to scale across many, many servers is it's going to be a natural fit for the cloud. So as the cloud trend continues to accelerate, 
this kind of data platform that can spread across many, many servers in a scale across architecture as opposed to scaling up uh, by buying a, a bigger server will become a much better fit and will uh, get an intrinsic faster growth because of the cloud uh, trend. So again, that gave them extra confidence that the market size opportunity is a very big one. And then you always want to have a conclusion slide where you hit a couple of the key ideas that you wanted to get across. And that's what we did in slide number 15 is what will differentiate us is enabling Hadoop as an elastic platform over many, many customers that we uh, can do multi-tenant support, so support more than one workload within the same environment. We'll add all of these features like monitoring, reliability, and availability that are not available in the open source and that can add differentiation for us. And then we'll add IDEs and higher-level integration that make it easier to integrate this platform with the existing uh, infrastructure within those uh, companies. So that's it. That was our slide deck. And uh, yeah, after making that presentation, we got $5 billion. Nice. Thank you so much for this quick walkthrough, Amra. So after you've discussed your pitch deck, now let's take a step back and look at the startup fundraising process in, in general. Typically, the fundraising process entails being investment ready, developing a fundraising strategy, creating a pitch deck and financial model, reaching out to investors, getting the term sheet, finishing the due diligence, and finally getting the money on your bank account from those investors. From your experience... What things do you find the hardest along the fundraising process at the different stages? So, for example, if I'm talking about Series A, Series C, IPO, and why? Yes, so you're right. Each stage has its own challenges and its own areas of focus that you want to highlight when talking with investors. So, in the very early stages, round A, which is the deck I just showed you right now, in that deck, you didn't see us show any financial spreadsheets. Right? We didn't show anything that showed a profit or loss, how much we're going to spend on employees, how much we're going to spend on offices, on hiring. On... We didn't show any of that. Right. Because at stage A, none of that matters. At stage A, what you're trying to do is uh, convince the investor that there is a market at the first place. <laughs> so the hardest thing to do at stage A is that, is uh, giving a pitch that is so compelling that uh, when you leave that meeting with the investors, They are confident that, one, you are the right team, two, for this real problem that exists, and three, with a very feasible solution that's going to be unique to you and differentiated for you. And that's it. That's all you're trying to accomplish in, in stage A and stage B as well. And round B, same thing. Round A and round B, usually they happen when you're still very early on. You only have two or three customers. You're not really making a lot of money. So for in these rounds, it's all about proving and convincing the investors that the problem is real, you can solve that problem in a very differentiated way. Stages uh, C, D, and E, now you're entering the what, what we typically refer to as the market fit stages. So the first stage was the product discovery, where you discover the product and what product you have. And then in the market fit stages, you're trying to show that this problem that you promised the investors is going to be a big problem is a problem that's repeatable across the world or first across the U.S. and then eventually across the world. So in stage C and D, that's where you want to show a lot of evidence of actual customer implementations. This is how customer, I mentioned, for example, MasterCard is one of our public customers. This is how MasterCard was able to build a large environment that it did exactly what we promised. This is how uh, British Telecom in the U.K., another public, uh, publicly referenceable customer of ours, built a system that did exactly what we promised. So you want to give them lots of evidence like that that show how real customers are now using your product in production, not in experimentation, not in proof of concept, to achieve uh, that problem. 
and solve that problem. And then you want to also show them the beginnings of your financial health, how much you're spending on engineering, how much you're spending on marketing, how much you're spending on sales, and the ratios of that uh, compared to how much money you're making back. Because that becomes the formula that you use to deploy new teams in different regions and different countries. If you deploy a team and it doesn't meet that formula in terms of how much you're spending on marketing and sales and support and professional services as a function of the revenue that you're making or the potential revenue that you could be making, then it's not worth deploying a team in that country. So you come up with some parameters like that and you show them that. You show that also to the investors. And that's what you're trying to convince them, that now the name of the game is proving the repeatability of this model outside of just the Bay Area, in our case, right, because we start in the Bay Area, but outside of the region in which you started. So that's what happens in round C and round D. Now, round E and round F, which typically round E is the last round before the IPO, F sometimes in our Cloudera, we did have an F at Cloudera. That's where you're showing, uh, you're, you're now purely becoming a uh, an investment banking exercise. It's no longer a startup early venture exercise. It's, an, it's more of an investment banking exercise, meaning that it's now all about the numbers more than anything else. They're the growth stage. The growth stage is I already proved repeatability. I already have my parameters and metrics for how I'm deploying in different regions and different geographies and how can I extract revenue in a healthy way such that that revenue becomes profitable in the future. And now I want to raise money so I can deploy sales teams across the world in different regions to make more revenue. But with the understanding that sales teams take anywhere between three months on the low end to a year at the high end to become productive. So when you deploy a new team, they're not going to be productive right away. But if your assumptions and if what you proved in terms of revenue achievement in other regions hold correct, you can show that over time they, be, they will become very profitable. And that is what gives the investors the confidence is, yes, I am going to invest in you. Right. Even though you're losing money right now, I'm going to give you even more money because, I, because you showed me with very high confidence that by deploying that money in sales team in different regions, you can achieve long-term revenue returns uh, at very high rates. And that's what you're doing in round E and round F before the IPO. IPO, which we also went through uh, earlier this year, is exactly the same. So IPO is exactly the same, a lot more focused now on the numbers, uh, less focus on the promise, but you still want to give them the promise, meaning the ultimate problem. We believe data will make what is impossible today possible tomorrow. You still want to give them that promise and how foundational and big this market could be. But at the same time, you want to focus on the existing market, the, how you're disrupting the legacy systems and taking money away from them, how you're shifting budgets within corporations. Just make it very tactical, very real, right here, right now. And then the extra bonus on top of that is showing them that the market's longer term can be a huge, huge market. And the combination of those, these two things, I'm growing revenues right now at a very healthy rate. I, can, I will be profitable if my assumptions hold true, and this is why my assumptions will hold true. The market opportunity is massive in the future. This is what you need to demonstrate before you go and become a public company. Cool. And now I would like to talk to you uh, about staying innovative. So when I look at, at the startup journey, basically, from the startup being founded to maybe at some point doing an IPO and even maybe going further. In the beginning, you should be validating, okay, there's a big market and there's a big problem as well that you're trying to solve in a unique and Uh, 10x better way, for example. And then you are basically starting from zero revenue. And if the market is big, then you should be staying focused on really executing on this type of market because then you can spend money capital efficiently and scale quickly. At some point, there's a, a balance shift basically from 
going away from staying focused to diversifying and innovating into new market segments, for example, so that you don't lose out on the next innovation, yeah, I don't know, cycle or so. What is your view on that? And how do you find this kind of sweet spot where you think about, okay, now I should be switching, keeping my head down, focusing and executing my game plan and then expanding and changing your game plan? Yeah, that's a very, very uh, good question. And that is, again, I'll go back to the Innovator's Dilemma book that I was referring to earlier. Uh, that's one of the key things covered in, in that book, which is the trap that the larger companies uh, fall into by not uh, focusing enough on the next thing and just focusing on the current thing, uh, companies can be completely made irrelevant. I mean, right. many, many examples of that exist in the past. Of course, one of the most famous is all of the the, the photography companies mm -hmm. that will, like Kodak, for example. And Kodak was very focused on cameras and film and totally did not see the digital revolution taking place. And, and now where is Kodak, right? right? while some of their competitors were very focused on the digital revolution and that they still exist and they're still doing very well. These kind of inflection points that shift the market in very significant ways for enterprise software companies happen at a slower rate. So it happens much quicker for consumer companies than for enterprise software companies. It still happens for enterprise software companies. Like That is exactly what we are doing right now to legacy databases. So in many ways, uh, legacy database companies like IBM, uh, they are being disrupted by this new way of doing things that we are bringing to the market. Yeah. Uh, now, IBM now is starting to wake up to that and starting to uh, correct for that. We'll see if they will be successful at it. But for the first few years, they were completely dismissing it and saying, we don't think this is relevant. We don't think this is important. Uh, and they weren't spending any money on it. And now that they have seen Cloudera become uh, the force that it is, they're starting to double down on it and try to do more there. So our job at Cloudera first I will highlight that what we have right now, the opportunity that we have in front of us right now, data will make what is impossible today possible tomorrow, is a massive, massive opportunity in itself. So I don't see us changing our focus on that anytime soon. I think the automation of decisions, meaning collecting data from around us and around the jobs that we do, humans do, and trying to automate a lot of these jobs is, is something that's going to be with us for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, this is a massive, massive trend. We have customers now that are replacing lawyers with this technology. They look at the lawyers and how the lawyers review a contract, the input contract, the output contract, and the machine can now do it much faster than them. We have customers uh, using this to replace doctors in certain areas and diagnose diseases that are much harder for the average doctor to diagnose or discover uh, with ease. We have customers replacing engineers in manufacturing plants and in power plants, detecting failure before it happens. So this kind of innovative wave that we are in right now has a very long life cycle that we are not worried at all about looking at what's the next thing. <laughs> we, we, we are focused on this thing right now, and we are still at the beginning of it. Uh, Cloudera right now is a fraction of the market cap of a company like IBM or at Oracle. So we don't have to worry about these problems, I would, I would think, for 10, 20 years from now. Right. That doesn't mean that we don't have to be innovative. We absolutely have to be innovative, but innovative within the problem that I just described. So uh, we are in continuous conversations with our customers, looking at how they're using our systems, how they're implementing them, how they are deploying them and trying to come up with innovative new features within our product set that makes that easier for them. So, for example, one of the most recent innovations that we introduced into the market about two months ago 
is a product that we refer to as the Cloudera Data Science Workbench. And the Cloudera Data Science Workbench is a web-based browser application in which data scientists can go and, and very easily implement machine learning and advanced analytics algorithms and deploy them in production within the main environment that has the data without introducing risk of stability of that environment or security issues with data being leaked out of the environment in a, in a risky way. And that innovation came out of us, again, being very in touch with what problems our customers have. And then once we detect a repeatable problem, that this problem is happening over and over again in a repeatable way, then we go out and we try to implement or acquire, in this case, actually, we did acquire a small company that helped us achieve this, a, a solution that helps solve that problem in an innovative way. So uh, it's a very long way of saying, as long as you are in tune with your customer needs and focused on their problems and not your problem, it's very hard for you to fall into that innovator dynamic trap. If Kodak was truly focused on their customers and truly talking to their customers all the time, as opposed to just focusing on how to make money and, and focusing on their problems as opposed to the customer problems, they would not have missed the digital revolution because the customers would have told them, we love this way way more. It's way quicker. It's way faster. It's way easier. Yeah. Why are they not doing something about this? Totally agree. So 100% customer focus and listening and getting really immersed into the customer mindset. Amr, in only nine years, Cloudera went from being a small startup to becoming really the powerhouse from my point of view for everything related to big data, machine learning and analytics. I'm very, very excited on the next 10 years. And uh, then maybe we will talk again and then look back what, what the last 19 years have been looking at. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, we can see whether uh, Cloudera fell into the innovative dilemma trap or not. Hopefully, we will not fall into that trap next time. And also, we will find out whether IBM will be the next Canon or will still be around. <laughs> cool stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Amre, thank you so much. Uh, let's uh, stay in contact. Good stuff. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for this very nice conversation. Thank you. Yeah.